This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What makes for a happy life? A fulfilling life? Robert Waldinger and Mark Schultz, the directors of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, have just published The Good Life, Life Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness. Their invaluable insights emerge from the revealing personal stories of hundreds of participants in the Harvard Study that forms the basis of this new important book. Join me as I welcome Mark as my guest on this edition of The Literary Life. Why don't we why don't we just sort of take it from the beginning and talk about what the world's longest scientific study actually is? It's it's a, in addition to being long, it's a remarkable study that started in the 1930s, 1938 to be exact, and it started as two different studies that shared a very unusual focus for that time. Both these studies were interested in trying to understand what leads to human thriving. Instead of focusing on problems and problematic outcomes, they're really interested in trying to understand how people can flourish in particular circumstances. So 724 people began to be followed in 1938. So end of the depression in the US, beginning of World War II. If I'm not mistaken, they were mostly men, if not all men. They were right? all men, right? So really right. important, and we can talk more about that. But two-thirds of the sample came from inner-city Boston. These were kids that were growing up in very disadvantaged circumstances. So poor neighborhoods, tenement buildings, uh, about two-thirds of them came from immigrant families. Most lived in homes without running water. So facing real economic challenges, and there the goal was to try and understand how some kids could thrive despite the challenges in that particular environment that they were growing up in. And then across Boston, literally, on in Cambridge, the remaining one-third of participants came from Harvard University. They were selected as students that were likely to graduate and be part of a study of the transition into adulthood and try and understand, again, how people might thrive, this time in a very privileged circumstance. Both groups were followed for, it's going on 85 years, so throughout their entire lifetime until they died, we're now following 1,300 of their female and male children. Um, and along the way, we included the spouses of original participants as well. Let me ask you a question, just because I'm fascinated by it. So it's did it start in Harvard or did it start with the other three quarters uh, of the participants who came from Boston proper? They, they both started almost exactly at the same time. Very unusual. And again, they were separate studies that then became united as the Harvard Study of Adult Development. 
Both studies were started by Harvard affiliated folks. So the inner city sample was a study started by a husband and wife team, the Glucks, that were interested in delinquency. And this was actually a group that was chosen as a non-delinquent comparison sample. These were kids that were doing okay, despite, again, the circumstances that they were growing up in. And almost at the same time, folks at the Harvard Health Center had this idea to try and uh, study people who are flourishing to go against this trend of just focusing on difficult outcomes and attracted the attention of W.T. Grant, the, the um, um, department store magnate who was interested in child development. So early on, that part of the study became known as the Grant study because of the funding coming from W.T. Grant. Now, was it always a study from the beginning on happiness or was it a more generalized study that were going, there were a lot of studies like that going on in those yeah. days. Some of them were kind of nefarious as well. So, so this study again was unusual, both studies because of this focus on flourishing, but the outcomes were of course, more than just a circumscribed focus on whether people were happy or fulfilled or satisfied in their life. There were lots of outcomes related to well-being and adaptation. There was also a great interest in physical functioning and medical uh, outcomes as well. And there were some, I'm not sure this is what you're thinking about, Mitchell, but there were some um, unusual parts of the study too, in terms of the kinds of things that were focused on. So one uh, innocuous example was there was a, a measurement of ticklishness, how ticklish right. the, these young men were. Um, but there were other data that were being collected were related to ideas of the times, which were really about fascism and the importance of your ancestry. So right. there are ideas about the shape of your face. Head I, remember the, I remember the head shape. Uh, exactly. That was an idea that hasn't borne well in terms of its predictive value for anything meaningful. Uh, although this continues, by the way, to be an area of research today, it's come back into fashion. And um, But I still think there there isn't any real evidence of uh, it being a useful area to focus on. They were also really interested in the shape of these young men's bodies, uh, how masculine and feminine they were, whether certain kinds of what they called somatotypes might predict better outcomes or not. And this had to do with themes that were really quite present, particularly in anthropo anthropology at that time, um, but were very much connected to fascist ideas that were alive and well in the U.S. as well as in Europe at that time. And when did women become part of the study as well? Yeah, so along the way, the spouses became part of the study, and they were, you know, kind of teased, I think, early on by being asked some questions about their husbands, um, but uh, became a formal part of the study at least 20 years ago, where they were given the same questionnaires as uh, their partners. But even before that, there were attempts to reach out to the partners about specific questions, for example, about their marriages. There were attempts to reach out to the children of that first generation of participants. And then about 12 years ago now, we reached out to this, what we call the second generation, so the children of the original participants. Um, and two things are important about that. 84% of the original participants continued to participate in the study through their lifetime, which is a remarkable figure for a study of five years, let alone 85 years. So this was a family that grew up together, really important idea, community. And then when it came time to ask their children, which we did about a decade ago, um, we were quite pleased that more than uh, two thirds of those children said yes, that they're willing to participate. So very high levels of engagement. And certainly the current group that we're studying includes uh, folks that identify across the gender spectrum. And 
what what is the the racial and ethnic makeup of this yeah. group? Yeah. So another important question. And one thing I want to say first, we, we can talk more about this, but you introduced me by talking about the book, The Good Life. And in the book, we go well beyond the study, which is what any good scientist does, that we're looking for replication across multiple studies. We never want to depend on one study. So the things that I hope we begin to talk about from the book are really findings that are true across time, across culture, across gender, across uh, ancestry, across a number of differences. So you've kind of integrated other studies yes. into the book itself, because what I asked you really was from the Harvard study and the Gluck study, what was the um, racial and economic, well, Got I know it. the economic makeup, Got but the racial and ethnic makeup right. of the original cohort. So, so most of the original cohort were uh, from European ancestry, and many of them in the inner city group had just immigrated from those areas to the United States. Um, in the Harvard sample, there was, again, about a third, if I'm remembering correctly, were children of immigrants, mostly from Europe. Uh, but they were tended to be from distressed areas in Europe. So these were either uh, they were fleeing poverty or fleeing some sort of discrimination. There was also a sizable number important to recognize as well that came from the greater Middle East. So what we called Syria at that point, which was a large area of the Middle East, also includes parts of Turkey. So there were sizable numbers that also came from that region. But they really represented the demographics of Boston at that time. Boston, I think, was close to 99% Caucasian of European ancestry. And uh, this was the nature of the study when it began to be studied in 1938. The reason, I, you know, I'm fascinated by all of this because one of my um, favorite uh, documentaries, uh, which reminds me of this a little bit is the whole seven up series mm -hmm. yeah. which i watched from the beginning i yeah. think and it's really about people about my age you know it's it's every seven years starting in about 1955 or so which is when i was born and they don't really come up with any real conclusions they're just showing what's happening to all these people and you're absolutely right i mean so many people dropped out of it after a while for so many other reasons. And the fact that you have gotten this kind of participation over the decades is kind of remarkable. So how many, when, when you talk about the other studies that you brought in, talk a little bit about some of the other studies yeah. that you referenced. Yeah, this. so let me say one thing about the Seven Up series, which is such an important work that Michael Apta did following these people intensively across time, documenting their lives. Their goal wasn't really about science, right? This was a study from its start was based on science and it's 724 individuals that were studied very closely using the best scientific methods of the time. The methods of adapt, you know, have changed as we've learned more. Um, so the intent was very different, um, but there is a, a parallel in terms of this interest in trying to understand people and trying to get inside their head. Um, in terms of what we did in the book, when we were interested in trying to generalize beyond uh, the experiences of folks from our study and the findings that we have from our study, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of studies we talk about in the book. So good science, again, builds on replication, this idea that this is a finding that's true across time, across populations, across particular methods. 
Um, so the, the best way to do that is to look at what are reviews of other studies. And some of these reviews include literally two, three, four hundred studies at once that are looking at similar kinds of questions. And what we're looking for is the kind of average size of whatever the association is. In our case, we're really interested in the, the link between relationships and how well they're working and certain emotional or physical health outcomes. And you can do that by looking at reports of loneliness and physical health, reports of loneliness and how long people live. And they're literally accumulated hundreds and hundreds of studies at this point that um, are relevant to this. Yeah, no, before, and I plan to get into the lessons of learned from this study, but I'm fascinated by the mechanics of the study. Yeah, as well, absolutely. Because yeah. for, I mean, it's a study of over 85 years or so. And to have that kind of consistency, even academic consistency, there had to be a real commitment by all of the researchers involved. So two questions. Yeah. Uh, actually, three. Uh, how often did you actually go back to each of the participants to kind of reevaluate them? That's the first question. Second question is, uh, ultimately, as we sit here today, how many people have you actually studied uh, emanating from that 700 and some odd yeah. from the beginning? And thirdly, how many researchers uh, yeah. have been involved in this uh, from the beginning? Yeah. So you'll have to help me because my memory is not good, but let's start with the, the first one. And this was a study, both studies that later joined together that were really interested in the lived experience of people, trying to get inside people's heads, understand how they understood the world, how they experienced their daily life, and the kinds of challenges and opportunities that they faced. So that meant doing in-depth interviews from the very beginning. So all the participants were interviewed. When I say interviewed, we're talking about hours and hours of interviews that they went through over many occasions. It wasn't just one interview. Um, there were visits to the homes of all 724 participants, uh, interviews with the parents, observations of them interacting with their parents. So this was an unusually in-depth start to the study. And I emphasize that because I think it's important that the participants learn from the very beginning that what their experience was was something we were interested in. We were interested in trying to ask them about it, trying to understand it. Um, and the regular check-ins, so these interviews happened at the beginning, maybe every three or four years, but over the course of the study, really about every 10 years, questionnaires every two years throughout the course of the study. Wow. So they were contacted with great frequency and again, replied with a compliance rate that was just extraordinary. Um, medical records were collected about every five years. Um, these interviews were done historically. They were always done in person. More recently, we've done some via the phone or via new technologies. Um, but people were, were followed very closely across time. And that's important for a number of reasons. It allows us to understand people in a very nuanced way. It means we collect lots and lots of information from them. If they respond to questionnaires by saying, this is the wrong question, we follow up in an interview and say, well, what was the right question? What should we have asked you? You're not asking me something that's important. What, what is it that we should be asking you? Um, so this is a study that really builds on that nuance, and we really have 724 in the original sample, sort of family histories or, you know, files like photo albums of families that are quite extraordinarily detailed. Um, 
The second question, I think you asked me about how many total participants, if I'm remembering right. So it's 724 right. from the initial study. We really can include the original parents, so the parents of participants, because we interviewed all of them. We asked them about their family history, about their relatives. So that's the zero generation, the first generation we followed for their entire lifetimes. We're now studying more than 1,300 of their children. We studied many of the spouses of that first generation. So it's well over 3,000. Um, and it's an extraordinary study, not because of that number, because there are studies that have way more participants, but that number, including the depth of the information that we have, the length of time that we followed them, is quite unique. It's the only study. And, and, and the generations. So you can, And the generations. Exactly. You actually can see, you know, uh, you know what you know what came from the various parents and how the parents affected their offspring in terms of all of this it's exactly right exactly right and that's really. some of the big research questions that we're asking is looking at what psychologists call generational continuity or inter or, or changes in continuity um, trying to understand, you know, what people's origins, what what it has to do with their life, even trying to understand something as simple. Um, I know you have a, a few siblings, Mitchell. If I asked you and your siblings about your childhood, you might report different things about your experiences growing up, about how your parents acted, uh, what kind of parents they were. Some of that might reflect true changes that happen, the distance between you and years. And some of it may be perception. So a neat thing about the study that we're doing as we speak is trying to get those retrospective perceptions of what childhood was like from the second generation of participants and comparing that both among those different views within a family, but also comparing it to the data that we have as these folks were growing up. It's a very rare opportunity, right, to have both of those views. And I can tell you, I can, I, you know, we don't know exactly where the science is going to lead us. But the early signs are those views aren't always compatible, that we tend to, our construction of the past is a construction. It's not necessarily a veridical account of what happened. So much is being debated and talked about now about generational trauma, right? And um, that's something that I'm sure that becomes extremely um, either prevalent or interesting in terms of the kinds of, of of lessons that you did learn in this? Well, yeah, so they're, they're also, you know, I'm a psychologist by training, but this is an incredible place to learn about history. Uh, so I teach, I've been teaching for close to 30 years now, and students today will say, this is the hardest time ever to grow up. There are unique stresses that we face that no other generation has faced. And I think that that is true, the last part, that there are unique challenges that younger people face today that are different than other generations have faced. But then I remind them of the cohort of participants that I've followed here, right? They grew up in the Depression, um, in the college sample. World War II, the college sample, 91% of them served in the military. Most yeah. of them volunteered to serve in the military. Um, Korean War, throes of the 60s, the you know economic challenges that we've had in recent decades. So um, each generation has its challenges, but boy, this was a generation that grew up with, with particular challenges. Yeah. I want to make so sure we come back to your third question. There was a third yeah, one. The third that question was simply how many researchers yeah, were really so, involved in this. So there are four generations of leadership in the study. Um, Bob Waldinger and I wrote the book, The Good Life. Bob is the director of the study. I'm the associate director. We've been involved in the study for 20 years. 
we got handed the study by George Valiant, who remained involved in the study until very recently, uh, was active in doing this research. George ran the study for a long time. And then there were two other leadership teams before that, including the folks who founded the study. Um, each of those teams had a bunch of people working with them that were critical to the success of the study, including a number of people that would maintain regular contact with participants. So these participants learned that the study was a place for them to check in over uh, their lifetime. This was a cohort of young people that grew up being told not to talk much about their experience and share their challenges. And here we were asking them about, you know, you served in the war. What was difficult about it? Was there a time where you feared for your life? Um, so I think quickly they became um, um, appreciative of these opportunities to reflect on their experiences. So in the files, which are extraordinary of this study, you know, our correspondence, I, I just wanted to let you know that I've met someone. We've been dating now for seven months. I think she might be the one. Um, I don't know if the study's interested, but I want to let you know, right? There's that kind of correspondence that suggests people in some ways, again, appreciated this opportunity to reflect, but also they became part of a community that was important to them. And how did you come to it? I came with Bob Waldinger about 20 years ago. Bob and I had been working at that point together for 10 years. We met on another one of these longitudinal studies that is also quite extraordinary, began in adolescence, followed people up into their 30s, you know, which was, mm. we thought, an amazing study. Um, and Bob and I met as he was beginning to do research. I was a postdoc at that point. Um, and 20 years ago, Bob was invited by George to think about taking over the study. George had been one of Bob's teachers when he was in med school. And Bob brought me along as part of the, the deal to That's take great. over the study. So let's get to the lessons that you've learned. Let's get to the meat of it. So yeah. what did you learn from this? What are your conclusions as we sit here today? Because yeah. it's, it's an ongoing study, so things will shift and change. But so, what are your conclusions as of now? Hundreds and hundreds of papers from the study. And there's some things that aren't surprising to anyone. The study shows that you want to take care of your body, like you're going to be in it for 100 years. So you want to exercise, you want to avoid smoking, you want to avoid excessive drinking and see the doctor. Um, other findings about the importance of how we cope with negative emotions and challenges in our life. But the signal finding, the finding that led us to really want to communicate this in a book that would reach lots of people is a very simple message. If we look across all of our findings, if we look across lots of other studies, it's a simple message. Relationships keep us happier and healthier across the lifespan. It's all relationships. I use the word relationships, plural. It's not just whether you're lucky enough to be in a relationship with an intimate partner that really works and you're thriving because of it. It's your friends, it's your relatives, it's your neighbors, it's the people you work with. Um, it's all relationships are important in keeping us happier and healthier. Is it the intensity of the relationships? Is it the quantity of the relationships? Is it is it the quality of the relationships? Are all of those factors, uh, do they all work together to make us happier or not so happy? So the simple answer is yes, it's all of those things. And I'm gonna start with two ways of thinking about it. Uh, the first way is just to 
recognize, and this is the joy of writing a book and really thinking about this, that we don't spend much time thinking about all the things that we might get from relationships. There's so many functions that relationships serve. We all know that we're social creatures. We evolved to be social. That was how we protect ourselves and, and got food and all those kinds of things. Um, so we're social creatures by nature. There are pressures to continue to be social. Um, but relationships turn out to serve so many functions for us. So it's a source of information for us. If we don't know how to do things, we often ask people, our friends open our horizons, our contacts increase our knowledge of information we might not have access to. And perhaps most centrally, emotion, uh, relationships help us cope with the stresses that we experience in life. So challenge is inevitable in life. It happens to all of us. And relationships are incredibly powerful stress busters. They help us navigate stress and the many elements. So it helps us deal with the emotions that we experience when we're stressed out. If I'm you know, struggling with something at work, I might consult a friend or my wife and talking about it, getting advice. Uh, helping me think about it from a different perspective, pointing to a direction that I hadn't thought about, something that I was missing as I was constructing this. All of those things are, are, are things that are part of relationships and how they help us manage stress. They keep us healthier. So friends often look out for us. Uh, did you go to the doctor? Did you follow up the last time I saw you? I know you were struggling. Your knee was giving you trouble. What, what happened? Did you ever figure out what it was? Um, do you want to join me? Yeah, I'm trying to lose some weight. Uh, do you want to exercise with me? Do you want to go for a walk? So we often can develop habits that are good for us in our connections with others, but probably most centrally, uh, the aspect of relationships most central is the way that it helps us navigate stress. So that's the big answer, Mitchell, about you know all the functions. But I do want to say one thing about quality, quantity. We can come back to it because there's a lot of nuance. Most important thing is we need people who have our backs. We feel like they have our backs. So when we're at um, a challenge, when we're in the midst of something that's really overwhelming us, the key factor, and this was the question we asked folks in the study, in the middle of the night, if you're scared or something's wrong, you're sick, is there someone you can call? We all need at least one person strategically, it's probably good to have more than one person because sometimes that one person has their own challenges or may not be available. So we all need people who have our back in times of challenge. Yeah, and I think what you bring out as well is the idea that the reason for trying to encourage a variety of relationships is that everyone is different. Mm -hmm. So you can't, you don't necessarily get everything from one person. Even if you're in a very happily, you know, in a, in a very happy uh, a marriage kind of relationship or a partner relationship, yep. you, you you can't really expect to get everything from that person. That's right. So the idea is to have a variety of relationships, I imagine. That's absolutely right. And there's some really interesting research that's done by a psychologist um, named Eli Finkel, who's uh, Northwestern. He wrote a book called The All or Nothing Marriage. And he makes an argument that one of the things that led to the rise in divorce rates, the rise in the challenges that people have had, um, if they're trying to do that one intimate connection successfully, 
is um, the expectations that we heap on our partner, that we, we, we have too much that we expect from our partner. They're going to be everything for us. They're going to help us figure out how to promote ourselves successfully at work, how to um, solve problems about the car that needs fixing, um, to be our emotional coaches, to be our sources of all recreation and entertainment. Um, and that's a lot of expectation to put on one relationship. And that's a shift uh, generationally across the 20th century in particular. Um, and that may be part of what has challenged uh, marriages. We've also grown more isolated, all of us. So all of us that are depending on one person, we do that within a world in which we're less connected to other people as well. So I think, yes, absolutely. There are benefits to multiple connections. Studies are pretty clear uh, that folks who have larger social networks that have more friends also show some benefits that folks that have more narrow networks don't have. So talk a little bit about what you found out about loneliness yeah. and where it was then, where it is now, yeah. and, and, and all of that. So this is a really important topic, and it's, you know, particularly as we're talking, it's about a month and a half after the Surgeon General put out a health advisory about the crisis and social connection in the United States. The, the UK has a Minister of Loneliness to help recognize this as a public health problem. So let's talk about what loneliness is. It's a sense that people don't have your back. It's a sense that no one in the world knows you cares about how you're doing and would be there if you needed someone. The problem in today's society is that in the United States, for example, surveys suggest somewhere between a fifth and a maybe as high as half the population experience loneliness in a given week. So extraordinary numbers, right? Half of adults experiencing loneliness in a given week. Some of the highest numbers are young adult populations, including university populations that are in close proximity to others with similar interests, similar goals, similar lifestyles. So it's not about physical proximity. It's an internal experience that no one knows you, cares about how well you're doing. There are two reasons why it's important. High prevalence, so as high as 50%, not just in the United States, in other industrialized countries as well. Eastern countries, Western countries, doesn't matter. Um, and it's very clear from hundreds of studies now that this is a health risk that's on the level of the risk that we associate with smoking or mm. obesity. So that it's a health risk for a premature dying. It's a health risk for all of the diseases of aging that we're familiar with, cardiovascular problems, dementia, um, and it's a risk, not just because of the absence of the supportive effects of relationships, but it's also likely that the experience of loneliness itself, we experience as a stressor. It makes us uncomfortable. Um, it adds stress to our body. We're in tear to our body. It arouses that stress response, which is great when we need to flee a potential threat, but it's not so good when it's chronic and there's no obvious threat in front of us. So loneliness is a major public health problem and most countries in the Western world at least are taking it quite serious and beginning to try and figure out policies that might help diminish and that. And I think what you point out so, so eloquently is that it's not only the young, but it's also the old. Yeah. And in many ways, uh, the old handle it a little bit better than the young do in some ways. So, so there are two groups that are at highest risk. It's the young adults and the oldest adults. And the older adults are the ones that we've always 
been worried about as they get older and less mobile? Are there going to be concerns? And, about, and they're losing their relationships. And they're as, losing connections. As people die. People are dying and they're you know having more trouble getting to them because of mobility limitations. Um, so that's been a challenge for older people for a long time. Loneliness has grown over the last few decades that it was growing long before the pandemic and the pandemic accelerated some of the trends. But you're pointing to an interesting uh, idea, which is that as we age, there's some sort of accumulated wisdom that we acquire that as a kind of an emotional wisdom that has to do with leaning into the connections that give us joy and pleasure. And older people seem to be able to do this better than younger people. If you think about young people, one of the tasks of a young pe person is to acquire information. And for young people, it might make sense to prioritize new acquaintances and new information over taking advantage of existing connections that they have. Whereas older people really want to max out what's around them, the connections that they have. And they are better in some ways than younger people at doing that. So one of the surprising findings in modern psychology, there's some debate about this, but most research suggests that older people, for example, are happier than middle-aged people. And that's extraordinary when you think about the challenges yeah. of growing old. Now, have you also found, have you found this, has there been a change in this, particularly when I'm thinking in terms of young people, particularly, mm -hmm. I I remember reading, I think it was Lizbeth Shore, who did a book on wealth and mm -hmm. did a book on, on, on kind of a history of wealth and that sort of thing. And she talked a lot about, you know, people in the 50s and the 60s for, well, mostly the 50s for, you know, it was a pretty screwed up era but the one thing about the 60s the 50s was the whole notion of keeping up with the joneses was a it was a lot easier to keep up with the joneses right if they got a swimming pool you could probably get a swimming pool if you were middle class now because of social media and what's happening with instagram and everything else it's not just keeping up with the joneses it's keeping up with keep, everyone yeah. we have to keep up not with, even with everyone but the bar is now keeping up yep. with Beyonce and yep. keeping up, keeping up with the super rich and keeping up with this fantasy life yep. that I think has led people to have very skewed notions of what they aspire to and what they think will make them happy. I think that's absolutely right. So, you know, at the beginning, we were talking a little bit about the particular challenges of each generation and the challenges of this generation, I think, uh, very much have to do with the role of social media and the new communication technologies. So, you know, there are other things that are important I don't want to leave out as well. There's uncertainty about the future, especially our environmental future and the climate change. There's uncertainty about the, you know, whether the economy will grow or continue to stagnate. So there are real physical concerns that the younger generation has. But the thing that's different in this generation is partly these social comparisons that are fueled by the uh, media availability, and it's ubiquitous. We carry it around. It's not just something we turn on. The messaging of those distractions has become more powerful with social media and the presence of technologies in our lives. So you talked before about, you know, it's no longer folks down the street that we might compare ourselves. It's to the lifestyle that Beyonce lives and the things that Beyonce has. And the way I talk about it is that we used to be able to go out, you know, to the street, look down the block 
and just make sure that the cars that the neighbors had were similar to our cars. But now we know what everyone has, and it's not a, a objective picture of what everyone has. It's their curated show online of their best moments. So it's not just Beyonce. It's the people you went to school with are putting online a kind of curated um, narrative about themselves that shows them at their most successful moments. So that's a very hard thing to compete with. We are creatures of comparison. And those comparisons have become quite pernicious. They're particularly challenging for younger people, those comparisons, particularly challenging for, for young girls and for women as well. Um, so I think that's part of the challenge. And then there are changes in our society that have continued to evolve, have been happening for a long time. Um, we're a mobile society. Many of us are, are moved from where we grew up. So our friends that we went to school with, our families that were important sources of support are no longer present in our lives. And that means by almost by definition, we're paying attention to other messages and new people in our lives. And there are good things about that, I think, enriching things about that. But it also means that some of the old ways of socializing have become less important to folks across time. From what we've learned, where does it lead us? What do we need to do as a society? Yeah. What do we need to do to make and enhance um, these lessons and turn them into something actionable? Well, I think I think these questions are related. So I think the first step is really taking these things to heart. And there are two parts of the message that we need to take to heart. One is how powerful relationships are for our well-being both our emotional well-being and our physical well-being. And it's the latter piece that I think is surprising to people. Relationships affect how wounds heal, how quickly they heal. They affect the experience of pain when we're exposed to something that is, is painful and challenging for us. Um, they affect the way our, our system, our immune system responds to threats. Um, so there are a number of ways in which relationships get a, under our skin. This is the current frontier in science. That's really exciting. So it's not just about feeling good, which is important for most of us and being satisfied in life and having meaning, but it's also important for our physical health. So that first step is really recognizing that and not saying this is something silly or unimportant or something that I could do later in life. This is something I hear from younger people a lot. I'll, I'll, I'll lean into my work life now and maybe in my 30s or a decade from now, I'll focus on my relationships or I'll pick up those friendships. What we find from studying people across eight decades of their life is if we don't intentionally lean into relationships, if we don't intentionally push against the messages that distract us from relationships, that relationships wither. So the generation of folks that we studied, many of their old friends they had lost touch with, people that were important in their life, family members, siblings they were no longer in touch with. They often would ask the study, do you happen to know where my roommate from college is? Do you happen to know where my sister is? Because I know at one point you had a conversation with my sister. These kinds of messages were startling to us. But when we look at other studies of friendship and relationships across time, it's very clear we need to really consciously lean in. We can't be on automatic pilot. So it means in, in the book, we talk about it as social fitness. It means treating our connections with others as a form of fitness, like, like physical fitness, assessing our priorities, 
thinking about what relationships are working, leaning into them more, making sure we're spending time with those folks. A relationship that's working is one that energizes you, that you have some trust with that person, and you experience joy and pleasure with that person. What kind of work do you think needs to be done in the mental health field to help us kind of move into a space where it's easier to form these relationships? Yeah. So one idea is that the the challenges, the skills that are required to surmount the challenges in relationships are skills that can be taught. So if we think about, I'm going to make it very real and, and maybe from the perspective of someone who's older, maybe hyperbolically real, um, during the pandemic, people couldn't be with others physically. For young people, in some ways, they were well-equipped for this. They they were um, very facile at technologies that connected them to their peers. They were already used to it. So whether it was texting or various kinds of social media platforms, they knew how to use that. But the one thing about texting and other social media platforms is the rhythm of the conversation is very different than the rhythm of an, of an in-person conversation. So if I have a conflict and we all have conflicts in life, it's impossible that we can always agree with the people around us. When we have conflicts that arouses feelings in us that are challenging to know how to deal with, we have to figure out how to proceed if we have a difference in perspectives. And um, those are skills that can be taught. We learn by experience, but they're really important to have the opportunity to learn them. So there's a generation of young people that lost a good two or three years of opportunities for in-person uh, opportunities to, to learn that or experiences to learn and to grow those skills. And people more generally also got rusty with those skills. It's not just young people, but all of us got rusty during the pandemic. So these are skills that can be taught. They're as basic as being able to recognize your emotions, to be able to talk about differences in constructive ways, and to, to deal with those vulnerabilities that we all have. It's not just about mental illness, but all of us have experienced vulnerability in relationships, no matter how good our parents were, no matter how close we are to our siblings or how lucky we've been in love. All of us know what it's like to put yourself out there with the possibility that it may not be reciprocated. So all of us have a memory of being disappointed, um, being um, perhaps burned in a certain way, or we felt like we've been mistreated. So relationships are challenging. They're messy, they're complicated, but they bring with them incredible rewards. And I would also argue that they're really the stuff of life, that without relationships, Life well, of doesn't have much. And, and you know, it always strikes me, too, that in order to enter into good relationships on both sides, giving as well as receiving, the, the word empathy comes into mm-hmm. play, right? And does it trouble you as it does me that, um, that among some circles, uh, the humanities are being uh, diminished in the schools People don't want to talk about feelings and that sort of thing. And it's being diminished in the books that are allowed to be read in the textbooks. What do you think the long reaching, the far reaching results of that sort of uh, ideology, ideological way of approaching education might have for you? Yeah. So I think it's really, really important for all of us to be exposed to experiences that are different than our own viewpoints that are different than our own. That's how we learn the most. So 
you know, there's a, one of the reasons I became a psychologist, if not the main reason was because I'm really interested in trying to think about, you know, what makes people tick, um, why they think that way, why they have certain preferences. And in my therapy practice, in my research, the kind of research that we're talking about today, the more different that experience is from my own, the more I'm able to learn. So I appreciate those opportunities incredibly, but we all don't have the opportunity to be psychologists in that way, but we do have the opportunity to ask questions and to be curious and literature and film and the humanities is an incredibly powerful place to learn about the experiences of others. Um, and those experiences or the otherness could be lots of differences. It could be you know, historical differences. It could be cultural differences or differences in the way that we look or that we're abled. So reading, learning, being open to those experiences, I think are really powerful. Um, you know, I learned certainly in writing this book, part of its power lies in the stories that we tell about the participants. And we are people I know from the response to the book, people are interested in learning about other lives. Reality TV is a 21st century phenomena. Um, and it's another way, right? It's not a highbrow way of learning about the lives hey, of others. Look, I read in order to learn about, I read yeah. fiction to learn about the lives of others. Yeah. There's something very cathartic about, about going through someone else's, you know, angst that, that you, that are, that played out in a novel or a film. So all of those things are extremely important. And also what's also important is that we're accepting of other people. And and it's it's terribly offensive to see what's going down now. Yeah. And thinking about all of those people who will feel marginalized yeah. and will not feel part of the larger community, which you are teaching us is what is so important for them to be healthy. Yeah. Right? In the long run. And I and I also want to say you do in the book, you do a wonderful job of telling the stories of the different people that you're studying. And you and and, and I want to end it. Uh, or this end this conversation with the last chapter of the book, which I really appreciate. It's for everyone who feels like, you know, perhaps they're not quite, they haven't quite reached that level of relationships that they need. I think the last chapter, if I'm not mistaken, is called It's Never Too Late, right? Yeah. Is that what it is? You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So again, this is a remarkable study that's been going on for 85 years. And one of the early contributions is that um, development doesn't stop when we turn 18, that there's nothing about psychological development that's triggered at age 18 that's different than age 25 or 30, that we continue to grow and change in important ways. And that makes sense to a modern eye that we face different challenges. Parenthood for people is a time of incredible growth. Um, as we age, there are new challenges that we have. So we continue to grow and learn things. But if we look at the folks in our study, we see more change than we see stability across time. And we see some extraordinary stories and arcs of kind of ups and downs. But I'm going to end on the optimistic note that the book does that there are people in the study that struggled for decades. And one person in particular that we profile who was one of the least happy individuals in the study, he was in a terrible marriage, isolated from other people. Um, the only thing that gave him a bit of joy was some of the work that he was doing. And in his 60s, he had to retire from that work. He was unable to continue to do that work. 
Um, he decided at that point to separate from his partner. And one of the challenges that he had is he had no friends. So the study asked repeatedly, do you have friends? Do you have folks that you see on, a, on any repeated occasion? And he would answer no, or simply no, he would say. <laughs> um, in his 60s, he decided to start going to a gym. He was a little bit worried about his health. So he was encouraged by others to go to a gym. And he figured out that if he went to the gym at the same time every day, the same people were at the gym. And he began to have repeated conversations with those folks and found a group of people that were fascinated by his knowledge of old movies, which was a love of his. And he started having viewing parties at his house. He'd invite people from the gym over and they developed interests in these movies. So in his 70s, when the study checked back on him and asked him the same question we asked over and over again, do you have any friends and expected the typical answer? He said, yes, several was his response. So this is a message that I think is an appropriate message of realistic hope that making friends is actually not as complicated as people imagine. It requires people think about somewhere between 40 and 70 hours of repeated contact over time best done through activities, going to a gym, uh, volunteering in the community, people you work with, uh, people you commute with. There are lots of places to have these repeated contacts. And if you're able to put yourself out there in a way like this person was by talking about movies, it's often reciprocated in ways that people can develop friendships. So from one of the loneliest to a person who had really important friends that sustained him into late life. Mark, the book is The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness. It's been fascinating. I could talk with you for another hour. But thank you for being on The Literary Life today. Such a pleasure, Mitchell. I enjoyed talking and uh, really honored to be with you.